Hello, beautiful. Thank you for tuning in to the Colorism Healing Podcast, where our goal is to learn, transform, and resist. What you're about to listen to is the audio version of my weekly live streams on Instagram and Facebook, which you are welcome to join every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central Time. But for now, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, folks. Welcome to another weekly live stream with yours truly, Dr. Sarah Webb of Colorism Healing. I'm really excited about today's topic, color in class. I've been working on my notes and um, yeah, I have a lot of foundational things that I want to talk about before I really get into like colorism and classism. So my apologies in advance for any folks who were ready for me to just go in on the colorism piece. I kind of want to talk about class as um, an intersectional issue, kind of what it really means in society and types of currency and that kind of thing. So I'll probably do a part two, right? So color in class part one for today. And you'll just have to come back and join me next week for part two, where we really talk about the nuances of being um, a lighter skinned person of color versus a darker skinned person of color who is working class or middle class and that kind of thing. So before we jump into the topic, I like to see who's in the room. So say hello. Let me know where you're watching from. Let me know what the, what the weather's like where you are. I am currently in Springfield, Illinois. It's warm and sunny, a little humid. So I'm enjoying it. I like the hot weather. Um, and I do have some announcements as well. Not some announcements. I just have one really big, really important announcement. And that is that on Friday, August 20th at noon central time, we will be having a live book launch streaming on YouTube, on the Colorism Healing YouTube channel. So many of you know that I host an international writing contest every year. And as part of that contest, we publish pieces into an anthology. And so that anthology is coming out this month and you'll get to see some of the authors on the live stream. You get to hear them read their work and talk about why they wrote it. Um, so I'm really, really looking forward to that. It's always like the highlight of my year. I always get super emotional and like it makes me want to cry. But for you, you also will enjoy it. And I also have giveaways. So people who participate live have the opportunity to possibly win a free copy of the book, for example. So again, save the date, mark your calendars for Friday, August 20th at noon central time. So that's Chicago, US Chicago. Um, not everyone knows that the United States has four different time zones. So you wanna check for the actual city. If you're not in the United States, make sure you're looking up Chicago. What time is it in Chicago? Um, because New York is in a different time zone. Los Angeles is in a different time zone. Um, so keep that in mind as well. Okay, so let's see. Hey, Sarah Bestwill, thank you for purchasing a badge. Um, these badges go to support the variety of work that I do here on Colorism Healing. Thank you, No Angry Passengers, for purchasing a badge as well. Y'all are so, so sweet. Love that y'all are part of this community. Um... So we have some folks from Atlanta, Georgia in the house. Black Night 06, 26.2. Always good to see you in the room. Um, Lynn T. Elliott. Hi, I'm Lynn from, is that 
MPLS Minneapolis, is that what that is? My cloudy, but um, I love the hot weather also. Yes, I love hot weather. Um, Sarah Bessel said, hey, from Boston, hot, humid, and hazy. Um, I like the alliteration there of the H's, <laughs> hot, humid, and hazy. Um, welcome, Lucid Lows. We got Washington State. This is Tig Nigat. Um, Washington State, unusually very hot. Wow, okay. Um, Kev, what's up, Kev? 50407. That's Cuz right there. Hey, Cuz. Just checking in. Good to see you. All right. Um, so I have a lot of notes and I'm going to be looking down at my laptop periodically. So again, if you're just joining, the topic of conversation is color and class. But I think for today, also taking into account the comments and questions that you all might pose throughout the conversation, um, I'm going to be talking about race and class a lot. So yes, colorism healing, I center colorism in all my conversations. But I was in thinking about this talk, right, and talking about color and class, I was thinking a lot about whiteness. Whiteness is a color, white is a color, and how these, we can't talk about these systems of color and class without talking about whiteness. And so some of my initial comments today are gonna to be about whiteness and the, you know, white as a race, but it's also a color, right? Um, hello from London, UK. Hey, Zawadi Naturals. Hello from Chicago, smart girl Simone, shy town in the house, currently in a heat wave that will hopefully break soon. <laughs> yeah, I'm in um, Springfield, I'm three hours south, so I don't know if it's uh, hotter or cooler, because um, I know urban, urban areas tend to be hotter than more rural areas. Um, but welcome, y'all. So the first thing I want to t clarify in terms of my comments about color and class and race and class is that I'm going to limit my comments to the United States, right? Because it's already a really big topic um, and it's just simpler that way. <laughs> Thinking about the racial dynamics and the color dynamics and the class dynamics in the United States. Um, and also, I'm not an economist. I'm not a sociologist, right? So I read about these things, but I'm not an expert in like uh, philosophies about class and economics and that sort of thing. So full disclaimer. Um, and I was thinking as I was preparing for this, I was thinking a lot about Angela Davis. Anybody familiar with Angela Davis? <laughs> so several years ago, I read her autobiography, the autobiography of Angela Davis, and I, something stood out to me with her back then. Um, she mentioned how she was a member of the Black Communist Party. So Angela Davis was um, a professor of Marxist philosophy at UCLA, and a lot of people think she was a member of the Black Panther Party, but she wasn't. She was an ally, a friend to the Black Panther Party, but she was officially a member of the Black Communist Party. Um, and she, you know, one of her earlier books was called Women, Race, and Class, right? So even before we came up with the word intersectionality or intersectional, Black women in particular were talking about intersectionality, even if they weren't using that word, right? So I highly recommend that book by Angela Davis, Women, Race, and Class. Also, Bell Hooks' Ain't I a Woman? Black Feminist Literature, Y'all know the deal. 
But I thought it was interesting, you know, that, you know, Angela Davis had studied Marxism even, you know, since high school, I believe. I think she went to Germany and did some kind of program in Germany where she studied Marx, Karl Marx and all that stuff, and eventually became a college professor talking about that theory and that philosophy. But her decision to join the Black Communist Party forefronting, foregrounded the need to also talk about race in terms of class consciousness, also acknowledging you know, race consciousness as an integral part of that. And so Angela Davis always been inspiring to me um, as I was thinking about the need to always talk about class in an intersectional way, right? And that we can't talk about classism or class struggle in a, in a vacuum, as if it exists in a vacuum. Um, and that also reminds me, um, I, I wrote about Angela Davis in response to... Um, a white classmate of mine when I was in grad school, this white guy who we were reading, it was like a digital humanities class. And we we're talking about how racism shows up in the digital space, right? How racism is built into the digital world, the digital landscape, right? That technology is not neutral. Technology is not free of the biases of the people who make it, right? And so, you know, this guy, he insists, like, oh, but it's not really about race. You know, it's really just about class. And I, was, I thought even at the time, you know, it's awfully convenient for a white man to downplay the impact of race, right? Like, that's an awfully convenient stance to take that, oh, the real problem is class. Like, don't look at whiteness over here. Don't look at what whiteness is doing. Just let's focus on class because I benefit from that as a white man, right? And so there's this, you know, this idea that capitalism exists separate and apart from whiteness, but capitalism was birthed in whiteness. It's a result of white culture, right? Whiteness, white culture gave rise to capitalism in the first place. And so when we talk about class and class struggles and classism, right? Like that competition, that competitive hierarchy, that hierarchical structure was created um, and perpetuated through the beast of imperialism and capitalism and colonialism and chattel slavery and like all the things that come from capitalism. We have to acknowledge how um, capitalism exists in its current form because of white culture. Right, whiteness created, allowed, enabled a system like capitalism to exist in the first place. Um, and then also thinking about color and class, our race and class, it is highlighting two intersections, like the intersection of two things, but there are always more than just two. There are always more than just two layers. And so as I'm talking about color and class specifically, I have to be explicit and say that the way you experience the intersection of color and class is going to be different based on your gender, right? It's going to be different based on whether or not you live in an urban environment or a rural environment, right? Um, the way you experience racism and classism is impacted by what color you are, right? So race and class um, has an impact on your life, but if you're a lighter skinned person of color, you experience that racism and classism differently than if you're a darker skinned person of color, right? And so even if I'm spotlighting um, just two intersections right now, there are always like many at play. And so 
Yeah, I just want to say that as well. All right, before I continue, I see a lot of comments coming in. So let me go back up, see what folks are. see what y'all talking about. What y'all talking about? Um, highly recommend that book, An Absolute Staple. Yes. Um, the Myth of Capitalism, another must read. Oh, yeah, thank you. Please drop in any um, reading suggestions that you have in the book. Um, classism and colorism are pretty much synonymous in the Black community. Yes, Lucid Los. <laughs> Um, that is, yeah, exactly. Um, I wanted to talk about too, in terms of class, not just being about finances, right? And so this is what Lucid Los is talking about, um, with the comment that colorism and classism are synonymous is that class is not just about your finances. Class is also about your status. Okay. So two people can have the same financial situation on paper, like to the decimal point, two people can have the same income or the same net worth and not be in the same class, not be in the same social class, okay? Um, I think about, I was, um, so full disclosure, I've been having like a day. I've been pretty emotional today. A lot of the emotion has been anger and frustration. But I've been thinking about how my white colleagues, for example, we make about the same salary, right? They make more than I do, but it's not that much more, right? So we make in the same salary band, okay? And yet their quality of life is much better than mine, despite the fact that our incomes are the same. Because class, quality of life is not just determined by how much money you make, right? And so in that sense, we think about something like the added cost of being a minority, right? And people talk about the black tax and how there's a, like a tax on your life if you are black in America. And that can be financially, like having to spend more money and spend more time to receive the same quality of healthcare as my white colleagues, right? So even though I have the same healthcare package that they do, they are going to receive better, better health care because they're white in a racist society, okay? So even if we have the same health care package, even if we go to the same hospital for our treatment, their experience walking into that hospital, walking into that doctor's office is going to resort in better health care for them because of things like implicit bias, because of things like... Um, stereotypes and assumptions, right? There are people with medical degrees and medical licenses who think that women, that black women have a higher pain tolerance than white women. There are people with medical degrees and medical licenses that think um, black skin is tougher than white skin, right? And so it doesn't matter if I can afford the same healthcare as a white person because of racist stereotypes, I will have less effective healthcare than the white person, even if it's the same doctor, right? And so people can have the same income level, the same net worth to the decimal point and not have the same life, not have the same situation, right? My life is not the same as my white colleagues, even though we have the same profession and earn the same income level. They're, okay, I'm gonna keep going. 
And so I also want to acknowledge not just color and class, but color as class, okay? Not just race and class as two different things, but race is a class. A poor white person is not the same class as a poor black person or a poor indigenous person. They, we are not in the same class, okay? Um, and I think about this, a few examples. So right before I came on live, um, Donnie Rose, hey Donnie. I don't know if you ever watch my lives or not, but if you do, I'm shouting you out. So Donnie had just posted um, an excerpt from an article that he wrote about um, a black real estate agent and his black clients um, going on a house tour. So they wanted to buy a house, so they were going to tour houses. And apparently someone called the cops, the cops showed up with their guns drawn, drew guns and handcuffed these black people who had every right to be in that house. And so again, it doesn't matter if I have the finances to purchase a home, just like my white counterparts, my home buying experience is going to be harder. It's not going to be the same. I have an extra tax, an added tax, just shopping around for houses, okay? So even if we can both afford the same house, you as a white person will have less of a burden in the home buying process than I do. So that's one example, right? Um, I even think about, um, in terms of quality of healthcare, okay? I've told the story to some people, how even though I can afford eye insurance, that doesn't automatically mean that I will have good eye healthcare. So the last time I went to the eye doctor in town was right, was the same week, maybe like the day after, they announced the results of the presidential election, the 2020 presidential election. And up until that point, like I have been receiving really good service from this eye place in town. And like people were super friendly and they were like helping me try on glasses. But you know, last year when I went for my regular yearly appointment um, and Donald Trump had lost the election, my, the customer service was like night and day. Like people did not want to talk to me. Um, the actual eye doctor had like zero customer service skills all of a sudden. And just like the whole vibe was like, we don't want to serve you. We don't want you in here. We're mad because our candidate lost. <laughs> and I can say that with confidence because the town I live in voted for Trump twice. And so I have no doubt in my mind that the people behind the desk, that the eye doctor himself probably had an attitude problem because I'm a black woman who has the audacity to be able to afford health eye insurance. <laughs> let, me, let me get back to my notes. All right, let me see what y'all talking about on here. Um, <laughs> uh, see, I saw a long one from Lucid Loves, I think. Uh, Lynn T. Elliott says, I heard you speak at my place of employment, Federal Reserve Bank. I am here to learn. You moved my spirit. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I'm so glad you're back. 
Thank you. Um, Lucid Lowe says, irregardless of tangible benefits, a lighter skinned woman, for example, can live a great life in the hood in black schools, et cetera, than dark skinned black girls in the same neighborhood and school. Exactly, yes. Just because um, we live in the same zip code doesn't mean we're having the same experience. Just because we go to the same school doesn't mean we're having the same experience. Just because our parents work at the same job. So that's my other thing, right? When I say race is class, color is class, like your skin tone is currency. Having white skin, having light skin, having lighter skin is equivalent to having an extra grand or two, depending on how light you are, right? Maybe you have an extra five grand in the bank account. It can lead to tangible results in the opportunities, the doors that open for you, the resources that people are willing to allocate to you, the knowledge and the information and the mentorship that people are willing to give you, to bestow upon you, right? So a poor, light-skinned person is more likely to garner the sympathy of wealthy benefactors, is more likely to get that scholarship to go to the, you know, academic school. The lighter-skinned person is more likely to be seen as the one with potential, right? We're going to funnel our, the, our limited resources to support the potential of this lighter-skinned person, right? And that, the other, the notion that, you know, you have to have money to make money. I don't think you have to have literal money to make money, but you do have to have some type of currency to make money, right? And so currency could be your social network, right? So maybe you start with zero dollars, but you have really good relationships with people and then that allows you to get a job or that allows you to get a loan, right? Your talent, your knowledge could be currency that you exchange for goods, that you exchange for services, that you exchange for money. But skin tone is also currency. It is also something that can afford you an opportunity. It's also something that gives you access to space. Um, and not having a specific skin tone is equivalent to not having money, right? Even in a very like um, mundane sense, when we talk about the paper bag test and you had to be a certain skin tone to be accepted into a college or be accepted into an organization or be accepted into a church or a club, right? That's the same thing as being able to pay an entry fee to get in, right? So if the entry fee is $500 and I can't afford that because I don't have $500, then I'm not going to that event. I'm not going to that club. But if the entry fee is light skin and I don't have light skin, I'm not going to that club. I'm not going to that event. I'm not going to be able to partake in that space. And so because of colorism, skin tone is also currency. Um, let's see. Aw, thanks, Jandy, for the badge. Janelle says, yes, and even beyond mentorship, it's the sponsorship creating spaces for the lighter skinned person. Yeah. Um, Sarah Bestwill says, I've had to call in my physician colleagues after I heard them saying her pain was due to cultural emotions. Oh my gosh. And she didn't need more meds. Almost lost my damn mind on them. Wow. Wow. Sarah, thank you for 
putting that out there. Thank you for being honest about the fact that that happens because we know it happens. But to like have somebody talk about a specific experience where they had to address that, right? I'm gonna read that again, y'all. So Sarah says, I've had to call in my physician colleagues after I heard them saying her pain was due to cultural emotions and she didn't need more meds. I almost lost my damn mind on them. Y'all. I'm only laughing to keep from crying. It's the absurdity of that, right? Like, okay. Um, Lucid Los, there's a lot of currency in being non-black in black spaces as well. That's why I feel like calling other people an ally to black people can be tricky. Ooh, there is a lot of currency to being non-black. There's a lot of currency to being a non-black person of color because you benefit from the anti-blackness, but you also are guarded against being seen as the problem, right? It's, a, it's an interesting space to be in because you get to say, oh, well, yes, I'm oppressed by white supremacy. And yet you still are very much benefiting from the anti-blackness that is that fuels white supremacy. Yep, so many nuances, y'all, so many, so many nuances. Complicated. Uh, Auntie Shotty, hey, I don't think I've seen you in a while. It's been a minute. Auntie Shotty, um, that social capital is currency. And if your network is not white or professional by white standards, this, that access is not the same. Light skinned black folks often forget light skinned is proximity too. Yes. Yeah. And the lighter skin is absolutely social currency and when we think like people have explicitly mentioned it as such when we talk about for example how lighter skinned women can literally marry their way out of poverty <laughs> lots of them have done it right research articles have shown that not only are lighter skinned women more likely to get married period but they are also more likely to marry a partner or a spouse of a higher socioeconomic status. And that darker skinned women are not only less likely to be married, period, but when we do get married, we're more likely to marry someone of a lower socioeconomic status. So I think in terms of heteronormative marriage markets, and yes, it is a market, it's very evident, right? And that one specific, specific example, how lighter skin is currency, right? And this is an instance where we can take it outside of the United States, right? And when we look at Indian matrimonials, for example, and the, the ads and the way that matchmaking happens in India and how it's literally like having more money to be lighter skinned. You are more appealing as a potential partner or suitor. And then that also, again, reinforces the fact that a poor man does not have the same experience as a poor woman, right? And that men can navigate their class, their financial, their economic status differently than women can in many societies. And so the, uh, that, the intersections, you know, because you might have race and class as a black man, but you're still a man, but then you're a dark-skinned black man, right? So yeah, I just want to encourage you all to embrace the intersections, okay? Um, let me see where I am in my notes. 
Oh, okay. So I want to talk about a little bit about um, Ian Haney Lopez's book, Dog Whistle Politics. It's called Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class. There's a section that really stuck with me a few years ago where he talked, he debunks the myth that poor white people vote against their interests. And what he's saying essentially is that we, we prioritize, when we say that, when people say, oh, they're voting against their own interests, they're talking about only one interest and ignoring the fact that there are all other types of important interests that white people have for voting the way that they do. And that it benefits white people to vote in a way that protects white hegemony, even at the expense of economic progress. Again, because whiteness is currency. And for poor white people who don't have financial currency, their whiteness as currency becomes that much more important. And so we're definitely not going to give up to give up on the racial front because that's our last stand as poor white people. That's the only bit of status claim we have is our whiteness. Um, so it is actually in the interest of poor white people to protect the privileged status of whiteness because that's what is keeping them from essentially being... <laughs> down there with the rest of the folks. Okay. Um, Ati Shahti says whiteness. We have greater access inherently to darker skin people. Um, darker skin people, we benefit from colorism. Also, I'm loving this metaphor. It makes so much sense. Um, yeah. Great way to explain colorism to a child. That's always helpful. No cultural emotions. Oh, she said not cultural emotions. What kind of term is cultural emotions, though? Like, that's going to that's gonna stick with me for a long time. Cultural emotions. What medical book did you read that in? Like, seriously. <laughs> um, they pathologize black pain. They, the medical industry. Yeah, and of course... Um, with the opioid, opioid crisis, um, they justify that for not giving medication to black people when we're in pain. And yet it is not black people who have been the face of the opioid um, crisis. And even the fact that it's considered a crisis and not a crime. Mm -hmm. Because we know crack, cocaine was considered a crime and not a crisis. But suddenly this other drug issue that is impacting white people at exponential rates is a healthcare crisis, right? The lack of empathy for black people is deadly in the medical field. And I've said this before, I said we should have Black Lives Matter protests at hospitals because black people are more likely to die as a result of racial bias in hospitals than we are to die as a result of racial bias by the police. The police killings get sensationalized, right? They get dramatized. Um, 
But there's so much death and um, unnecessary um, like debilitation amongst black people due to mistreatment and maltreatment that results from racial bias. Yep. All right, let's keep going. Um, light skin is usually associated with wealth, while dark skin is usually associated with poverty and being poor. Yeah, so one of my intended topics of conversation was class stereotypes. And do you all remember the movie Straight Out of Compton? Straight Out of Compton did a casting call that made that very plain, very explicit. I, I'm actually glad that that casting call happened because then you can't deny it. You can't gaslight me and say that that's not true. When y'all put it in writing, they put it in writing and put it on the internet for people to see, y'all. <laughs> that the A-girls, they wanted the A-girls to have naturally long hair and light skin and that the B-girls could be light skin with weaves, right? So like Beyonce would be a B-girl and that the poor, unattractive, dark-skinned girls were like the C and D girls. Y'all, they put that in writing. <laughs> so yes, class stereotypes about darker skin being associated with poverty and lower class and lighter skin as a stereotype, right? Being assumed to be higher class. Um, Janelle Crux says, preach, it is their interest to vote for anti-blackness. Yeah, 100%. Um, Light-skinned women are dealing with their own form of colorism in the black community now because being an exotical is the goal now. <laughs> Lucid Lowe's is spilling all the tea. <laughs> So I think what Lucid Lose is saying there is uh, that light-skinned black people are realizing that they are no longer light enough. It's like, oh yeah, you you were benefiting from you know your light-skinned privilege for a long time, but now you're not light enough because you don't look like J Lo. You're not light enough because you don't look like Shakira, right? So even someone like who looks like Beyonce, right, is still like, yeah, you know, you are a bad, light-skinned, red-boned chick, but we want an ambiguously raced person with, like, green eyes and who doesn't wear weaves but has long hair. Yeah. <laughs> and that's actually what I had in my notes. Um, I talked about how I said it's not a flex to jockey for position in a system that oppresses you. And I've said this in my um, monthly emails, my Thursday thoughts emails about um, why light-skinned people also need to be invested in dismantling colorism because the ultimate game, you're going to lose. Like light-skinned black people, y'all are going to lose the game in the end. So you're jockeying for position in a race that you cannot win. You cannot win white supremacy. And so, yeah, you might have leverage on me as a dark-skinned person, but you are still going to lose because you're not white, right? And so any light-skinned black person who's like flexing on the fact that, you know, they get more attention, they get more clout, they have more status, like you're gonna eventually run up against the brick wall of not being white enough. And so let's dismantle the white supremacy altogether. Um, okay, where am I now to? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I, I reshared like this recent Facebook post about how people talk about race being a social construct. Um, and I mentioned how, well, money is also a social construct. But just like money can literally give you access to things, your race and your color literally gives you access to things. And so going back to those examples of the historically black colleges or the black social organizations and churches or even white spaces that only want the token, the token um, ambiguously raised person, right? Like you're gaining access to those spaces, not just because of your money, but also because of how you look. Um, and then the other thing in terms of class and color, as well as class and race, is that when people say things like, oh, well, you're not going to suffer because you have a good income and you're educated. Somebody actually told me that on TikTok. This is a comment I got on TikTok. And they were like, oh, you would, they, they said, oh, the, you would never suffer discrimination because you look clean and good or something they were saying about how I looked. And I was like, but when I walk down the street, when I get stopped by the cops, when I walk into a grocery store, when I walk into the eye doctor, they don't see my three college degrees. They don't see my credit score. They see my skin tone and my hair texture and this nose, right? Like that's what people see. And so they respond to me based on what they see. They're not respond. They don't know what my pay stub look like. They don't know if I own a house or not. They don't know what my credit score is, but they do know, oh, that's a dark skinned black woman with this kind of hair with a big afro. <laughs> and so cops will stop a dark-skinned black person who has education, who has um, a full-time career, but they probably are thinking of them in a certain way based on what they look like, not based on those other things that they can't see. And so being looking a certain way in many situations, such as police killings and police brutalities, matters more than what your credit score is. It matters more than what was on your pay stub. And even the example, did I talk about this example? Donnie Rose's example about, yeah, about the black real estate agent, right? So even if, you know, for example, a dark skinned person is able to access a certain neighborhood has the income or the financial capital to buy a house in a particular neighborhood, they're going to be seen as not belonging there. Yeah, you can technically afford it, but you don't belong here. You stick out. Versus a light-skinned or a white-passing or a white-assumed person of color was like, oh, okay, we're more comfortable with you being our neighbor. And so again, even if we can both afford the same kind of house, we're not the same. <laughs> um, so then the other thing I wanted to sort of end with today, let me read these before I end. Light-skinned women are, okay, yeah, we, I read that. Okay. Um, Sarah says, intersectionality matters is one of my favorite podcasts and super relevant to anyone looking to explore intersectionality. Very good, yes. They were all first year residents and super new to medicine. So it must be some old med school myth that persists. Glad I caught them early in their career before they could do more harm. 
Yes, Sarah. The the article I read, it was um a survey done amongst medical school students, right? Like I remember one journal article in particular, they were surveying medical school students about their perceptions and beliefs about um, black people and black skin and that sort of thing. And those were the stereotypes that were persisting. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think there has to be an audit. There has to be some kind of audit of medical school curriculums like A, to make sure that that stereotype is not being perpetuated, but also to ensure that there's active content to debunk those myths, right? Um, I love my people. How do we get light-skinned Black people to deconstruct light-skinned privilege and advocate against their own self-interest? So it goes back to what I was saying, is that it's not in light-skinned people's interest to perpetuate white supremacy. So a light-skinned black person, if a light-skinned black person perpetuating colorism is perpetuating white supremacy. And so like light-skinned people, like think about the logic of that, right? Like you're acknowledging that you, you are buying into the system that says white is better. And you only benefit because you're a little bit closer to white, but you're still not white though. And so you lose the game of white supremacy. And that's why I use white supremacy and colorism interchangeably. I think colorism is white supremacist. And so light-skinned people who hate white supremacy, y'all better be trying to dismantle colorism because that's what that is. That's my opinion. <laughs> um, Cloud blush, I think Beyonce was described as a B-girl on the Shredder Compton casting call. Yeah, she was. <laughs> She was described as a B-girl because she has to wear extensions to have long, straight hair. And so they were like, oh, well, you're a B-girl because your hair is not naturally long and straight. That's what they were saying. They put that in writing. I'm like, y'all putting y'all self out there bad for the world to see. Um, say it, jockey for position in a system that oppresses you. Um, there used to be a time when so many black folks used to claim I have Indian in my family. Why is that? That is a good question. Um, one is that it could be true, right? Especially in certain places in the country. For example, in Louisiana, there are a lot of black Indians. Um, so I don't know, like in some instances that was true. But the other reason, another reason is that it was an attempt to say, to be able to say I'm less black, right? That's a, it's a form of anti-blackness to be able to say, well, I'm not as black as you because I'm mixed with something else. I'm mixed with other things. And we see the same thing with Creole, right? Which is why me and several other people had a problem with Beyonce's lyric. And um, what's that song you talk about? You mix that Negro with that Creole um, formation, right? We have, I had a problem with that song lyric um, because to be able to say you're Creole and not black meant that you were, your class status, your social status was above just regular black folks, right? Um, when in reality, Creole people, there are dark skinned Creole people, right? Like not all, excuse me, not all Creole people are light skinned with wavy hair and green eyes. 
But the attempt to distance yourself from blackness, basically, it, it made you seem better. A lot of black people believe that oh, I'm a little bit better because I have some white blood or I have some Indian blood or I got whatever. Um, Chrissy Styles, Chris Styles says, yes, the system hurts us all. Yeah, and I compared um, colorism with light-skinned people to something like COVID-19 and how being dark-skinned is like contracting COVID-19 itself, um, but being light-skinned, you still are impacted by the fact that this pandemic exists. So even if you don't get COVID-19, you your life is still being impacted by the fact that it exists. And so it benefits everyone Right, like I haven't had COVID, but I will still benefit. My life will still be better if we got rid of it. Does that make sense? My quality of life has been diminished because of the existence of this pandemic that has killed other people, hasn't hurt me, but it's you know directly impacted other people. And yet I still, my limitation, my freedoms have still been limited, right? Like my access, my ability to move through space because there's something that's hurting other people. And that's, I think that's how sexism, racism, homophobia work, works. And was it Martin Luther King who said injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere? And also if any, in a world where anyone can be oppressed, then anyone can be oppressed. I'm gonna repeat that. In a world where anyone can be oppressed, anyone can be oppressed. And so people who are currently not oppressed do not need to sit on their laurels and think, well, I'm good because I'm not the one currently being oppressed. No, if, we, if you're in a world where some people can be oppressed, then you too can be oppressed and will be oppressed. They said the same thing during the Holocaust, right? Like, oh, they came, they come for those people. Yeah, yeah, they got those people over there. We're going to ignore it. And then, okay, well, they're getting a little closer. Now they've got my neighbor, like, right next door. But they're still not attacking me, so I'm good. And all of a sudden, it's your turn. So, yeah, we all need to be trying to create a world free of oppression. Because if we allow it to exist a little bit over, over there because it's kind of far away... Don't be surprised when all of a sudden it's creeping up on your shores, coming up on your doorstep too, right? Um, Lucy Lowe says, I agree, especially light-skinned men because dark-skinned black men have disowned them <laughs> too. Black representation is literally just dark-skinned black men with mixed and non-black or yellow-bone women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the book. It's called All the Women Are White and All the Blacks Are Men but some of us are brave. So again, black feminist literature talking about the invisibility of black women's issues because whenever we talk about race issues, it's about black men. Or if we talk about black issues, as I say, it's about black men. If we're talking about women's issues, it's about white women. It's like, where do we fall? Um, but in terms of who is represented as black, it is mostly black men, although, you know, Will Smith, Will Smith is, uh, he's trying to challenge that, okay? 
Um, and we know, I think we talked, was it in my stories or was it on a live? I think it was in my stories where we were talking about him playing the dad of Serena, Venus and Serena Williams as being an erasure of um, their dad as a dark-skinned black man. Um, I know Dark Woman and Girls 365 had posted about that as well. Um, but yeah. Uh, black Night 06, 26.2, what would that look like to you? Like, what are examples of where you would like to see that happen? Great question, No Angry Passengers. I really like your screen name too, by the way. Um, cloud Blush, right. People aren't Googling your, you first to decide if they want to be violent towards you. The discrimination is on site. Cloud Blush, yes. I feel like I'm really far behind in my comments. <laughs> Let me see where I am. Oh, okay, not too far. Good. Yes, thank you for that other analogy as well, Cloud Blush, right? Like people aren't going to say, oh, look at that dark skin, tall, skinny lady with, you know, an, a big afro and a wide nose. Let me Google to see where she went to school and where she works and, you know, how many followers she has on Instagram before I decide to mistreat her. No. Well, A, they're going to assume that they don't have to do that. So I'll tell y'all something else, too. I made a comment about somebody to someone um, about paying for something up front, right? I was like, well, I'd like to maybe just pay for it, you know, in one lump sum. And the look on their face, like they, they looked like they saw a ghost. It was like, you can afford that? And I was like, why are you surprised? I was like, why are you surprised that I could pay the whole amount up front? <laughs> what about me made that so shocking to you? Hmm, I wonder. <laughs> Um, Latanya Armore, yes, the sense of community and belonging will be lacking in some neighborhoods, even if you can afford it. Aha, that part, that part, I agree 100%. Um, Lucid Lowe's, yes, they were called quadroons and octoroons during Jim Crow. Cloud Blush, that line was weird to me. Creole doesn't mean a race. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. So the last little thing I'll say, um, so I'm going to talk more explicitly about the color stuff next week. I apologize because I know people were going to tune in for a more direct conversation on colorism. I know I talked a lot about like racism and colorism and other foundational aspects of class. Um, but going back to my reflections on Angela Davis... As much as Angela Davis inspired me, as much as she talked about the intersections of race and class and gender, she herself is a very fair-skinned woman with very thin features and a loose curl pattern um, and who grew up in a middle-class Black family, right? Her parents were educated and I mentioned how even when she was in high school, she was able to go away to study Marxist philosophy in Germany. So very privileged as a black woman. And even the Afro, right? Angela Davis is known for the Afro. When I went natural in high school and started wearing my hair in an Afro, people were like, oh, you remind me of Angela Davis. You remind me of Angela Davis. And it's so weird that Angela Davis became the icon of a hairstyle that was not natural to her. She, in her autobiography, she talks about having to 
do a lot of like manipulative things to her hair to get it to look like an afro, having to tease it to help it stay up because her hair is not naturally afro textured hair. It's like, um, like loose curls, ringlets almost. And so it's colorism is the reason why she is the icon of like afro pro-black, you know, iconography, right? Um, and the fact that I could say her name and know that everybody watching knows who she is, right? Kathleen Cleaver, right? These people became the faces of the movement because of their faces. Um, and so that's like my to be continued dot, dot, dot comment for this week. And so yes, next week I'm going to come back and finish like really laying out the, you know, color as currency um, and the employment discrimination and how generational wealth has worked in the benefit of light-skinned people since slavery, right? Um, and how, you know, a wealthy, dark-skinned person is still subjected to colorism because, again, people don't see your bank account when you walk in there. Even if you're wearing, like, designer clothes, right? Like, people ain't, most people ain't really looking at that, right? Like, uh, you don't, you don't really know. <laughs> um, so there's so much more to talk about just with, like, color and colorism. Um, so I'm going to revisit that to, like, really wrap up and drive home the relationship between color and class. And like Lucid Lowe says, that the middle class, like upper classes of black people are disproportionately light-skinned. And that when we look at wealth and pay gaps amongst black people, black folks are dis dark-skinned black people are disproportionately underpaid relative to light-skinned people. So there's like a whole lot of nuance I need to go in. And I don't like to go more than an hour for my live streams just because of people's attention spans and my own voice. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'll be back tomorrow. And so bring, continue to bring your comments and your observations. There was a lot of great, great stuff in the chat. Um, Rosa Parks is another one. She was not the first. It was a dark-skinned 15-year-old girl. Yes, Claudette Colvin. Claudette Colvin um, was dark-skinned and lower socioeconomic class, right? So Rosa Parks, again, the co it, it was a coincidence. Was it a coincidence that Rosa Parks not only light-skinned, but she was also educated and she also came from a, you know, middle-class black family versus Claudette Colvin, who was not only dark-skinned, but had a lower socioeconomic status and upbringing in the first place, right? And so Rosa Parks was the respectable one to be the face of the bus boycott. She was like the kind of black person people could sympathize with and support and rally their support behind. So yeah, definitely colorism even within the civil rights movement, like fighting for the liberation of black people, but we're gonna perpetuate this other layer of white supremacy. So thank you, Latanya, for a badge. Thank you so much for the badges this week, folks. That means a lot. Thank you, Keisha. Thank you, Cloud Blush. Thank you, No Angry Passengers. Michelle, AKA K-Drama. Oma. Um, Lucid Los, thank you always for your um, spot on comments. Disrupting Norms, shout out to you. Um, I'm trying to see everybody who made a comment. Sorry, y'all. Black Knight 06, 26.2. Thank you. 
Um, Cristal, yes, thank you. Jandel, thank you. I hope I'm not missing any people. Sarah, of course, Sarah coming on, giving us some book recommendations and talking about um, the like action, like the specific instance of racism that you witnessed at work. Um, Smart Girl Simone, Ati Shati, I love saying that name. <laughs> uh, yeah. Did I get everybody who made a comment? And thank you for everyone who watched. Even if you didn't make a comment, thank you for tuning in and engaging. And I'll see y'all next week. Bye. Thanks again for listening. Please remember to hit the like button and share this episode with a friend. I hope you can join us again for the next one.